The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me who ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. I did not know him, but the reason why I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. John testified further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from heaven and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, On whomever you see the Spirit come and and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. On the first Sunday of Advent, I mentioned that I would begin doing a homily series, and that those would include lots of things on the basics of our faith, the hows, what's, whys, and such of our daily experience of Catholicism. What followed was several weeks of things that may not have exactly seemed like the basics. They may not have been formed with lots of questions of why, what's, and how, but indeed I've prefaced them as a sort of foundation before we get into the things of our faith. I say that because if you remember in Advent, we looked at the reconciliation of God, of how the coming of Christ first in the flesh, as he comes to us through the course of our days, in the scriptures, in the Eucharist, in various other ways, as well as the coming in glory that we await in the end, all have one singular purpose, namely to reconcile broken humanity back to the Father. As Christmas came upon us, I reflected upon the earthly life of Jesus, and especially those invitations for us to meditate upon the marvels that God shows to us, of how the Lord speaks to us in so many various ways through the course of our days. And last week, that invitation for us to obey the voice of the Lord when we hear Him speak. Those points were important for us, again, because unless we recognize that indeed reconciliation is our entire purpose, our entire goal in this life. And that when we hear the voice of God, we ought to follow his voice to be able to be reconciled. Unless we know those things, we ultimately fall short and all else can be lost because we fail to recognize the foundation of everything we do. For this entering into ordinary time of the church here, I want to begin some of those basics that I mentioned in the first Sunday of Advent to look at some of the whys, what's, and how's of our faith. And I want to begin with looking at some of those things that are the basic building blocks of our Catholic experience. This week I would like to look at the question of where did the Catholic Church come from? Next week to be able to look at where did the Bible come from? And the week after that, the things that we profess as Catholics that are not in the Bible, where do we get that? And why does it hold weight if it's not explicitly found in the scriptures? And so I would like to use these starting points for us in our reflection through the course of this year. And so, where did the Catholic Church come from? 
ultimately we can find lots of answers for that particular question. We can say, of course, as the, the, secular, uh, the secular wisdom tells us in various encyclopedias, that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ, and indeed, it's true. We could say that the Church was first came into being, in a sense, on Pentecost Sunday, with the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, when they received the, the fullness of the strength to be able to go out and to spread the good news as Christ called. And indeed, that's true. But I would like for us to go back and to reflect a little further and to find where are the roots of our faith? Not just the external expression, because that's only a small portion of what we experience. The roots of our faith ultimately go back to the same thing we talked about in Advent, namely reconciliation with God. In the first reading today from the prophet Isaiah, we heard the Lord God speak to Isaiah, but through Isaiah to the whole people of Israel, to the whole Jewish nation, he said, I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that is our starting point. Again, always the invitation for us to focus upon our reconciliation with God, the story of salvation. And so what I'd like to do, as brief as possible, is to be able to give you the salvation history timeline. Now we could go out and we could break this up, and we could give the, there's a DVD series that has 24 DVDs that are an hour long each that cover exactly this. So if you feel like I'm giving you a whole bunch of information and you can't keep up with it all, there's a whole bunch more to be had, and it goes at a much slower pace, and you're welcome to go check it out. We also have um, on our website, formed uh, the form.org website that we're subscribed to as a parish, a number of works that are very similar to this. So if you're looking for more time to immerse yourself, we've got resources for it. But I would like to again go back to the roots and to tell the whole story from Adam and Eve until today. So... Pray that it's under half an hour. Adam and Eve begin. They're created by our Lord God, and he breathes life into them. We know the accounts. Adam and Eve have their children. They have Cain and Abel and Seth and so on, and have others that are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, but that we know are there. And for generations, they go on doing exactly what the Lord God had said to increase, multiply, and to fill the face of the earth with your children. And say so to do just that. Except the problem is, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, as the generations increase, more and more come to recognize their brokenness. And the world falls into great depths of sin. The world is looking forward to a reconciliation with God. We know that in Genesis, as we've heard in recent weeks, that as soon as as soon as Adam and Eve fell into their sin, the Lord God promised that a virgin would bear a child, that the man would crush the head of the serpent, and that ultimately that God would have the victory. And so they looked forward to that day. But in the meantime, generation upon generation came and populated the earth. We know that at some point the sin became so grave that the Lord God sent a great flood. And that Noah, with the, the ark, brought a bunch of the animals in, and saved a number of the, the righteous members of his family as well. And brought them safely to the land after the flood. The Lord God cleansing, cleansing the world in a sense of its sin. And so they start fresh once more. But they didn't actually heal humanity. It's just that the worst part was kind of deleted in a certain sense. And we started over much like Adam and Eve. 
And the families of Noah, the children of Noah, they go out to various nations and we can trace where exactly they went in the scriptures. And we can look at where they went and then the nations begin to increase and to multiply once more. And always this longing for reconciliation with God. There came a day where the Lord God said, it's time to begin the work. For generations they've been waiting. Today is the day. And he takes one man, Abram, whom he later would rename Abraham. And he says, Abram, I want to form a covenant with you. I want to form a family bond. That's what a covenant is. It's not just a a contractual agreement. But it's a family bond that, that you're going to be part of my family and I'm going to be part of yours. And so the Lord God says, Abram, in your person, I want you to be part of, the, part of the family of God, in a sense. And as part of that covenant, as with a contract, there were promises and stipulations that were made. Abram was promised three things by God. He said, first, you will, your generations will increase. Remember the stories of how he looks up into the sky and the Lord God says, as numerous as the star of the skies, the stars in the sky, so greater will be the children that come forth from you. Your family will be immensely blessed, even in his old age. So it was a question of faith first for Abraham. So the Lord God promised him a great lineage. From that, he secondly blessed him and he said, I will give you a promised land, the land of Israel as we understand it today. And he said, this land I will give to you and your future generations. And lastly, he said, through your family, I will bestow upon the whole world my blessing. So there's this ultimately crown of the sense that in the end, God will bless the entire world through this one particular family and ultimately through the one particular man, Abraham himself. And so begins the story of reconciliation. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had the 12 sons. If you remember the story of how the 12 sons, 11 of them were jealous of their youngest brother, the baby brother, and so they sold him off to the Egyptians, always a good idea, right, to just sell your little brother, get a little money on the side. And so they sold their little brother for a little profit. And actually, providently, the Lord God used that because Joseph, the young one, worked his way up the ladder by God's grace to be the second in charge in Egypt, second to Pharaoh, his right hand. And when the famine struck the 11 brothers who were remaining and all the family who was with him, they fled to Egypt because Egypt had food. And it was Joseph who became a type of Christ of saving the people. Joseph took in his nation and he brought them into Egypt safely. Soon they entered into exile, in a sense. By being in Egypt, they were taken into slavery. And they became slaves of the Egyptians, being forced to build their, uh, their towns, cities, infrastructures, and all this sort of thing. But all the time, the nation increased. More and more and more, the people of God grew. The time came, of course, where God raised up Moses after several hundred years. And Moses brought the people of God out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea... And they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Ultimately, at the end of that time, the 40 years, they entered into the promised land, the land of Israel. And there they rejoiced. 
to take a brief aside, as I'm speaking, I'm using multiple terms, but all referring ultimately to one particular people. As Isaiah said, it was a, a kind of a common Jewish, uh, a, a Jewish custom that they would say things in different phrases that meant the exact same thing, just to, just to heighten the intensity of it. So they would say something and then, and then double it up. And so as we, as we heard in, in Isaiah, they will, they will raise up the tribes of Jacob and they will restore the people of Israel. They were saying the exact same thing because the tribes of Jacob were the people of Israel. The people of Israel are the Jews. The Jews are Judaism. And that's an interesting thing because a lot of times we can get the terms all mixed up. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob was the last one. He's the last of the the patriarchs, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob one night fought with an angel. And after wrestling with this angel for several hours all through the course of the night, the angel bestowed his blessing upon him, and then he gave him a new name, which always indicates a new mission. And his name that was given to him was Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. So whenever we hear Jacob, it simultaneously means Jacob, the individual, as well as the entire family tree that comes forth from Jacob. When we hear Israel, we understand Jacob, the man who was renamed Israel, but also the entire people is Israel because the entire people now wrestles with God, wrestling of uh, trying to make sense of God's will and living in that family with God trying to make sense of everything as the Lord God speaks. So too, also, they were later referred to as the Jews, the Jewish nation, which was interesting because it was not only a nation, it was a family, it was a family tree, it became a political nation, but it was also a religion. It was one particular family who became a country, literally, and then that country was embodied with the worship of the one true God. And so, whenever we say Israel, the Jews, Judaism, Jacob, it's all the same. So we have to think in both, kind of both contexts. And so, kicking back off the, the sidetrack there, now that the people of God have, have entered into Israel, into the promised land, we see that two of the promises of God have been fulfilled. That entering into the promised land, you can go back and, and, and they have the, the numbers exactly of each tribe, of how many were included, and it's well over a million people. I think it was 1.6 million people who are wandering in the desert for those 40 years and ultimately walked into Israel and the promised land. So, many people in the generations of Abraham. The land has been given, the promised land, but they're still waiting for that sense in which God will bless the entire world through their family. They're looking for the day and they don't see it yet because so far they've seen exile and they've seen slavery. Where is the blessing that will come through them to the world? And they wait for that for many years. As they get into Israel, each of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of, of Jacob, they get their own portion of the land, so a family portion. And so they each kind of set up a basically states in, in, the, in the country of Israel that was given to them. And so they go through the course of their years. They raise up kings, King David and Solomon and so forth. 
And then the, ultimately, as often happens, the kingdom became divided and it was divided north and south. And it was uh, raising up of other kings and all sorts of upheaval in the political realm of things. Through that time, still, there was even more separation. The people of God were exiled from the promised land twice before the coming of Christ. But what happened during the exile is rather than for just, uh, basically, it would be prisoners of war. A foreign country would come in and conquer the, conquer the army of Israel. And rather than just take all the people and bring them to one other place, where, that, where they could all be together and possibly have a, a, an uprising there uh, and overturn that government in return, what they would do is they would take the individuals and they would take them in small groups. So say if there were 100 people, they would take five people and send them to one city, five people and send them to another city, five people to another city, and they would spread them out all throughout the nations, all over the empire that they controlled. They would send the various people that they had conquered. And so the Jewish people, this Jewish nation, this Jewish family, who was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, began to disappear entirely almost. There was a point where there were almost no Jewish people in the land of Israel. And yet the Lord God still had that one promise to give. Universal blessing. A thousand years passed from the time of King David And a virgin concedes and bears a child. We know that story very well, right? Our Lady bears the Lord. And they're raised up. 30 years humbly living in Nazareth. St. Joseph is the father of the household. The Lord Jesus growing in holiness and in wisdom. Trying to understand what is it that God the Father wills of him in his earthly life. And there comes the day where he enters into his ministry. And that's what we hear in the scriptures. As the gospel comes to us, Jesus is baptized. This first start of the year, and we hear those blessed words of John. As he looks and he goes, Behold the Lamb of God. All these years we've been waiting for that blessing that would come forth from our family tree. Here he is. This is the one. Follow him. This is the one through whom all the world will experience God's blessing. The time is here. God is fulfilling his promise. It was made manifest that that was exactly what was taking place as Jesus began to gather crowds and crowds around him. But although he could have just kept it kind of vague in general over over the thousands of people around him, he selected explicitly 12 people, 12 sons representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Any Jewish person looking at Jesus, hearing that he was the Lamb of God, and seeing him raise up 12 disciples to gather around him as a central core that would travel with him, would have known immediately that everything is changing. The day when God will come and restore the tribes of Israel, when he will raise up the sons of Jacob, it's now. And here he is at work. They would have understood that very clearly. They could have fought against it, and many did, because of the things that Jesus did and said. They thought, they thought rebelled against them and repulsed them. But they couldn't reject the fact that that's what he was saying. 
And so the Lord Jesus comes among us. For three years, he walks with those 12 and with the countless thousands who walk around them. He trains them up in the ways of his teachings. He gives them the new commandment of love. He tells them one day they will eat his body and drink his blood, and indeed they'll do it in the same way as he has. And so many other things. On the night before he died, as we'll hear in just a few moments, he said those blessed words, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He went to his death on the cross. Three days later was raised up in the tomb. For 40 days he wandered around Israel, appearing from place to place to various peoples. We hear the accounts throughout the Acts of the Apostles. And ultimately at the end of those 40 days, our Lord ascended into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God the Father and to claim the throne which was rightly his. Nine days later, the first novena, The Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and Our Lady who were gathered in the upper room in fear. And in that moment, the birthday of the church. The church didn't just come out of nowhere. It's not as if the disciples were kind of hanging out in the upper room and they're like, well, Jesus did this incredible thing. We ought to come up with a cool name for it and give a title, right? (laughs) Let's call it the Catholic Church. It'll be great, you know? It's not exactly what happened. (laughs) But rather, they took their faith that they knew, that they had been raised into their entire life, and they lived it in a new way. There are so many things about our Catholic faith that are intensely Jewish, and yet we don't always clearly understand it. The, The arrangement of our churches is very similar to the arrangement of the Jewish temple. The vestments they would wear, very similar to those that were described in the Leviticus, of how the priests were vested in the celebration of their, of their rituals. The prayers that we offer in Mass, very similar to those of our Jewish brothers. The fact that we come and we celebrate two main parts to our liturgy, the reading of the Word of God and the presence of the sacrifice, is the same as the Jews. The synagogue and the temple were meant to be together. We could go down a long list of things. But suffice it to say that the Catholic Church, that Christianity was not a radical transition, a radical separation from Judaism, from the Jewish celebration of faith, but rather the fulfillment of it. It was the moment that for a thousand years, the Jewish people were looking for the one who would bring the universal blessing to the world. And in Christ Jesus it begins. But he knew that he wanted it to go for generation to generation. And it wasn't his job to stay here among us in the flesh. And so he formed his church. He reconstituted the 12 tribes in a sense. And gave the mission to go forth to be the light to the nations to spread the good news of salvation to all the earth. Those disciples took that message, and they went out and began to preach. Enlivened by the Holy Spirit, they went from town to town, preaching about this Jesus. They would speak of the name of Jesus. They would set up, a, they would set up shops somewhere, oftentimes a synagogue or a local center of town, and they would teach the things that Jesus said and tell about the things that Jesus did. 
And as people would come and, and begin to, 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 to listen and to believe in this Jesus, they would do this for days, weeks, months, even years at a time. And as the Christian community would be formed up, eventually there would come a day where the apostle or the disciple who was there saw that they were more or less self-sustaining. That he didn't need to be there anymore and he could go off elsewhere. And so they would ordain a priest to be able to offer the Eucharist. They would have deacons to assist in the, in the service of the community. To serve those who were sick, who were homebound. If there was a larger enough community, they would come together and a bishop would be ordained. So that he could watch over a number of smaller churches. This was from the first centuries, y'all. It wasn't something that was made years and years down the line. We can see all of these things within a hundred years of the life of Christ. The disciples of the disciples write and speak of these things. In the 2,000 years subsequently, yes, things change. Things have happened in the sense that we've become more formalized, more ritualized. But the reality is the same. That the Lord God comes... And he sets one particular person over a community, and he says, build up the faith. And that one is sent to go out and to preach and to teach. And his disciples come. The day comes whenever the community is seen to be self-sustaining, and they move to the next place. Over and over and over again, it's happened through history. And yet here we are, almost exactly the same is the first day. The same mission, the same people, and the same Holy Spirit who comes to compel us. And that's where the Catholic Church comes from. Not from men, but from God. It's the fulfillment of the promise of God who said to Abraham 1,500 plus years ago, sorry, 3,500 plus years ago, that through your family, all nations will be called blessed. Through you, there will be a universal blessing. The word Catholic means universal. Brothers and sisters, we are the blessing. Not in ourselves, not because we're like a blessing from God, God's gift to the world, huh? But in the sense that we bring the name of Jesus. Every single one of us as a Christian, we bear the name of Christ, conformed to Jesus by our baptism. We're lights, just like that of Christ, sent forth into the world. The world where darkness is meant to be cast out, it's our place to do so. We are the light to the nations. We are the ones who bring salvation to the world. What a blessing to be part of the mission of God. What a blessing to be part of the promise. To know that God's promise that he spoke himself is fulfilled in you. It's your words, your deeds that become the light to the nations, the salvation to the people. May God grant us the grace today to open our hearts to him even more than we already have. To let the light shine even more than it already does. To rejoice in being part of the people of God, a chosen people, 
a holy people. One's called to go forth to share the light, to make known the name of Jesus. Let us call upon our Lord to adore him and to worship him here, who might be able to rejoice to show him as we leave forth today.